Welcome to the SCOTUS Blog Podcast. I'm Jason Harrow. In today's episode, Kevin Russell, a partner at Howen Russell, expands on his previous post regarding how to write a convincing cert petition when there is no circuit split. Now, here's Kevin. Over the past few months, we've had a series of podcasts discussing some of the basics of Supreme Court practice, including writing and opposing cert petitions. Today's podcast is a continuation of that series and follows up on a SCOTUS blog post I wrote recently discussing how one cert petition by an experienced Supreme Court practitioner dealt with the challenge of writing a convincing cert petition when the case does not involve a clear circuit split. I'm going to discuss that issue in a little more detail in this podcast. As I mentioned in the post and as I've discussed in a prior podcast, the single most important cert criteria is the circuit split. A very high percentage of cases taken by the Supreme Court are taken to resolve a conflict among the courts of appeals or state Supreme Courts over an important question of federal law. But a lot of the time, lawyers find themselves in the position of having to file a cert petition in a case where there really isn't much of a circuit split. One option is to try to argue that there really is a circuit split, but the Supreme Court isn't going to be fooled. They've got law clerks reading these petitions and the cases asserted in the split. And the other side is going to have a chance to write a brief in opposition explaining to the court that you're misrepresenting what the case is actually held. And at the end of the day, the pool memo written by the law clerks will tell the justices that there's no circuit split and you'll have done nothing more than to damage your petition's credibility with the court. There are better options. I discussed one in my blog post, which is to reframe the circuit split question in a way that allows you to credibly assert that there's a cert-worthy difference of opinion among the lower courts. For example, in the Klein petition I wrote about, the Court of Appeals had held that a particular statute did not provide commodities future commission merchants a cause of action to sue commodity boards because the statute only permitted suits by, quote, a person who engaged in any transaction, close quote, on a regulated futures market. The court thought that only customers, not merchants, engaged in transactions on futures markets. The petition apparently couldn't argue that there was a circuit split on the specific question of whether merchants could sue under the statute. So what the lawyers did in that case was to focus on the court's rationale, which was that the merchants don't engage in transactions on futures markets, only customers do. And they tried to show that this foundational premise is, is disputed by other courts. The implication is that while other courts may not have yet decided this specific question, the disagreement about this fundamental premise will necessarily lead to a conflict about who has standing to sue under the statute when that issue does arise in the other circuits. This isn't a completely compelling argument. The court may well decide to simply wait and see if the predicted conflict actually develops. But it's better than making a false claim that an actual conflict already exists, and it's better than simply arguing that the decision should be reviewed because it's wrong. Another option that's sometimes available is to argue that the usual emphasis on circuit split should be relaxed because this is an important issue upon which no split is likely ever to develop. Most commonly, this kind of argument is made when the issue is likely to come up only in one or a few courts of limited and specialized jurisdiction. For example, former Solicitor General Walter Dillinger, now at O'Melveny and Myers, has recently filed a couple of cert petitions challenging the Federal Circuit's application of a statute governing promotions for military officers. There is no circuit split, but the petition argues persuasively that the meaning of this statute is unlikely to ever come up outside of the Federal Circuit, because the Federal Circuit has exclusive jurisdiction to hear appeals from service members, asserting that they're owed back pay because their promotions were delayed or illegally denied. Lawyers can make similar arguments in patent cases, which are generally heard only in the Federal Circuit. 
in certain administrative law cases, which are generally heard principally in the D.C. circuit. A somewhat weaker form of this argument can be made when certain kinds of issues arise predominantly in only one or a few circuits. For example, most circuits don't have substantial uh, commodities future markets. The Second Circuit in New York and the Seventh Circuit in Chicago are courts with special significance in this area. Similarly, a a decision regarding Indian law is especially significant when it arises from the Ninth Circuit because the majority of tribes are contained within its boundaries. Yet a third option is to focus on the conflict between the decision below and a decision of the Supreme Court itself. The Supreme Court rules identify a conflict with the Court's own precedents as a reason to grant cert. This is, most, this is often misunderstood to mean that the Court will likely take the case if you can convincingly show that the decision below is wrong. But that's not the kind of conflict that will get the Court's attention. With tens of thousands of cases being decided in the lower courts each year, the Supreme Court can't possibly take cases simply to correct obvious errors, and it doesn't even try. However, the court does decide several cases each term where it appears that the principal reason for granting cert was to correct an obvious disregard of the court's precedents in a context that the court cares about. Both qualifications are important. There has to be a clear conflict with directly on-point Supreme Court precedent, and the court has to care about the error. The latter point is probably the most important. In recent times, the court has shown a significant willingness to take habeas cases just to correct an obvious error by the Federal Court of Appeals but it has shown no interest in, for example, correcting similar errors in copyright cases. As I mentioned in the blog post, these kinds of arguments may be enough to get your foot in the door, but they almost almost certainly will not be enough in themselves to get cert granted. Part of the reason is that once you relax the circuit split requirement, there are simply too many cases that could potentially qualify for review. The court has to have some method for deciding which ones it will take among that class. And the way the court generally makes that decision is by focusing on the importance of the legal question presented in the petition. By this, I do not mean that the court looks to correct the biggest injustices. Although the public often sees the court as the last result to to avert grave injustice, the court does not see itself that way, and it doesn't serve that role. It routinely turns away petitions asserting wrongful conviction of the innocent, the illegal termination of parental rights, the denial of asylum alleged to be tantamount to a death sentence, and other equally serious matters. Instead, the court is more likely to be swayed by arguments showing that the principle of law established by the case will have seriously damaging consequences for the public at large or, more frequently, upon the operation of economic or government institutions. So, for example, the petition in Klein argued at length that the decision below would interfere with the proper functioning of commodities future markets with radiating effects for the larger economy. Similarly, petitions by the government entities, particularly the Solicitor General on behalf of the federal government, can make much headway by showing that the operations of government institutions like prisons or large benefit programs will unduly or will unduly constrain the discretion of elected officials in dealing with pressing problems like crime or national security. Of course, you can't very well argue that the decision below will have these devastating consequences if it only applies to a few situations that rarely come up. That's why good cert petitions will argue that the issue not only is important but is recurring, and the petition will provide concrete evidence to support that claim. As I mentioned in the post, it's often very advantageous to have those points about recurring, uh, the recurring nature of the problem and the importance of it, uh, made through an amicus brief from an outside party or organization that doesn't have a direct stake in the outcome of this particular case. Because lots of attorneys know about the importance uh, of, of 
stressing recurring and important issues in the cert petition. The court frequently sees these assertions and will be uh, inclined to take them with a grain of salt. It understandably uh, will be reluctant to believe that based simply on the say-so of the petitioner. When an outside organization files a brief, however, which is relatively rare at the search stage, the court is likely to take the claim more seriously, particularly if the amicus comes to the court with some credibility as an expert in the area and as a straight shooter with the court. These are a few of the ways in which petitioners can try to overcome the handicap of not having a case implicating a clear circuit split. They are by no means perfect solutions, however. In fact, they usually don't work. The court takes very few cases not presenting a clear conflict. But the most a lawyer can do is give her, his or her client the maximum possible chance of review, given the nature of the case as it stands when the cert petition is filed. These are some of the ways in which experienced Supreme Court counsel attempt to do just that.